know that is that is wrong. Sin is when you do something that you know is wrong. When you do something that. Uh, Contrary to what you believe. Do you think that there are some sins that are worse than other sins? Is it all the same? Uh, yeah. Personally, I feel some sins are worse more than others. The quick answer is yes. My Catholic answer would be yes, there's mortal sins. And yeah, so, yeah. Tell me which ones are worse than the others. Um, I would think that killing somebody would be a worse sin than lying to your parents about something. Killing someone. Killing another man. Committing adultery. Theft. Uh, rape. Blaspheme. Blaspheme. That's what I would say. To sit there and say there's not a higher power. That's the ultimate sin. Killing people is worse. Yeah, it's a lot worse than telling a little white lie, I think. Uh, I don't know. If a sin is a sin, then it's a sin. Sin is sin no matter what. No matter how you look at it, sin is sin. You either sin or you don't sin. Is there any consequences for sin? I think so, yes. I don't know. I don't know about that. Yeah, it's called karma. It happens to us every day. I, I kind of feel in a karma that what comes around goes around. Whether right. it's a little slam the finger in the door or, or if it's a financial bind or whatever, you know what I mean? So if you do evil, it might not come back to you right away, but eventually it will. Is there any consequences for sin? I think so, yes. I think it affects the afterlife. In what way? Tell me a little bit about that. I don't think we can know. I don't believe in a heaven or hell, but I think it would be different for everybody. Consequences. That's not for me to perceive, and that's not for me to judge, really. Who am I to judge you for your sins, or, you know, for my, me for mine? I'm not here to judge who sins and who not sins, you know what I mean? Do you think you're a sinner? Uh, sure, sure. Uh, I don't think I'm up there in the... the the worst sinners, you know, I feel there's some are worse than others. I'm a sinner on little things, but not big things. I guess I am, because I'm not perfect. Do you sin? I'm sure I have, yeah, so everyone does it every once in a while. Do you sin? I do. Um, how often? Every day? Every week? Every day. Daily. It's ridiculous, but yeah. I probably sin multiple times today. Every day I go to work. Every day I walk out the door. Are you sinning right now, by any chance? No. Is everyone a sinner? I don't, I wouldn't know. Everybody has some kind of sin. We always go into sin, so we all sinners. Hey, good morning, everyone. Hey, we, aren't you glad you started off with that kind of video? Makes you feel warm and fuzzy to be in church. Um, we are in a series on questions, and we're answering questions that people are actually asking. And, and so what I did was, in, in preparation for this series, um, I did some research on, on what questions really intrigue people. And, and specifically when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to things that are found in the Bible, what are things that people at your job are asking you? What are family members asking you? What, 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 these are things that, that, that people are wondering about. And, and, and as you see, this question that was asked about what is sin, you're going to get all kind of different answers. And so, so today, what we're going to dive into is really what is sin what does the Bible have to say about that? And we're going to, what I'm just going to, I'm going to lay it out for you right, right, right at the beginning here. We're going to get into probably some of the most controversial topics that we see in our world today. And what does the Bible specifically have to say about some particular lifestyles and so on and so forth? And listen, as we get started, I want us to be very careful here. 
Because how many know when we begin to talk about things that are very controversial, uh, many times the world will look at the church and, and, and they will look at us with one set of lenses and just say that we don't care or that we're not loving or, or that we don't care about people. And let me, just, let, me just, let me just say this before I get started. For God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son for you and I, for all of our sins. And so before we start picking out which sin, like, you know, in the video, which sin is greater than another, we need to really look in the mirror ourselves, right? It's easy to look out the window of the world as the church, right? In our little comfy sanctuary here. You all got nice chairs. We bought nice comfy chairs for you, right? It's comfortable. The temperature's pretty good right now. Could be a little colder. It's a little, a little warm in here right now. Could be a little colder, right? So, so we're all comfortable, right? In the four walls of our church. How many of you know, as the church, many times it's easy to look out the window, right? And look at the world's sins and say, Aha! Look at what they're doing now. Meanwhile, we refuse to look in the mirror at ourselves to realize that we too are sinners saved by God's grace. And if we understand God's grace, and if we understand that the salvation that comes through God's grace, that, that I didn't deserve it, that I didn't earn it through my works, and it was a complete gift that God gives to those who walk by faith and trust Jesus by faith and put their heart in Him and put their soul into Him and say, Jesus, I don't deserve this. I didn't merit this at all. It was by your grace and your grace alone and your mercy that I received your salvation. Then what? Listen, 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 listen. If we don't get this, you're going to miss the whole message today. This message is probably one of the hardest messages that, I'll, that I've preached at this church so far. This isn't easy for me. So I want you to understand the seriousness of this. So before we start looking at the world and what they're doing wrong... We need to look at ourselves and say, God, it's by your grace that I've been saved. So instead of looking out the window and looking at all the sins and me hammering the pulpit and saying they're wrong and everybody saying, amen, we agree with you, pastor. We need to look in the mirror and say, God, I'm saved by your grace. And we understand that. We understand the power of God's grace to save me, Barton Grace, a filthy sinner. Then what it causes me to do is to look out the window, not with a judgmental heart, but with sympathy, knowing the ends that Jesus went to to reach me. Can I get an amen there? Good spot for an amen. Good. You're with me, 830 crowd. Okay, so so listen, I'm going to be completely honest with you this morning as your pastor. In preaching in 2014... I can't simply say the word sin and expect everybody to be on the same page. We got that from the video, didn't we? It's, it's obvious. 30 years ago, a pastor could mention sexual immorality and everyone would understand and most likely have the same idea of what that is. Today, if you do not explain exactly what that means, you can have all different kinds of definitions. And so the Apostle Paul, which is interesting here was faced with the same dilemma as he wrote the letter to the church in Corinth. And Corinth was a very immoral city. And Paul was writing this letter very specifically what was immoral and what wasn't. And I see Paul's letter in this very situation very similar to what I see in America today. 
And what was common and acceptable in Paul's day needed to be addressed. And and what Paul did was, is he shed the truth of God's word to them, that they would separate themselves from their old ways. So before we jump into the topic, let's let's biblically first, we've understand last week by talking about God's word. If you missed last week's message, you can you can listen to it online. You can get it on iTunes. I would highly, 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 did I say highly, highly recommend that you listen to last week's message why we believe that the Bible is, is, is our sole authority and, and why it is God's word. And we answered that question, why we believe this book is separated from every other book that has ever been written. So make sure that you get that message from last week. So if we believe that the Bible is our authority. Let, let's biblically define what sin is. And we have to start here or we'll start making up, like we saw in the video, our own definition of what sin is. So the definition of sin is this. Let me just give you a basic, as biblical definition as I can of what sin is. Sin is an offense to God. And it's an offense to God whether it's through neglect or through willful intent. So basically what sin is, is it's rebellion against God. And if we go all the way back to the beginning of Adam and Eve, we see that Adam and Eve rebelled against God's will and his wishes. And so what, we, what we've come to understand through scripture is that sin came into the world through their rebellion. Paul sheds greater light on this in Romans 5:12, where he talks about death in Adam and life in Christ. And what he says here in verse 12, he says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, which is Adam, and death through sin. So death spread to all men, which includes you and I here today. Because why? All have sinned. So what does this mean? What is Paul saying? We are all sinners by nature. We are all born with Adam's nature. Now, if, if you want to write down the quote of the year, here's the quote of the year that you need to write down. So if you're taking notes... Write this down, because I want you to understand what sin is. Listen, we are sinners not because we sin. We are sinners not because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. That was a good spot for an amen, but I know all you guys are writing down profusely, so I'm going to let you slide on that amen, okay? We are sinners not because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. So we have all inherited this thanks to Adam. Everybody say thanks to Adam for that, right? So we all so so there's nothing we can do in our own power to overcome this. This is who we are intrinsically. The result of Adam and Eve's rebellion and sin was death and punishment. So we live with that result every day. There is nothing in our strength that we can over that we can do in our own strength to overcome the death penalty. In our life, we will all die one day. Doesn't that make you feel warm and fuzzy? That's the result of sin. No matter how hard you try or how well you eat, you may outlive somebody else, but we're all going to die. So we live with the results of that every day. Every day I get another gray hair, right? My son just got his license on Friday. Pray for me. Now the real worry begins, right? I'm all excited. I give him a hug and I'm like, wait a minute. I look at the lady, you should have failed him. I gave you 50 bucks to fail him. What happened here? Something's wrong, right? How many parents understand? And they start driving, you're like, ah! So the great, amen. (laughs) 
The gray hair, the older we get, it's the result. That's a physical result of sin in the world because of Adam and Eve. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is what? It's death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because Jesus conquered death through the cross and through his resurrection. Here's another way that we know. So we know that we're sinners by nature because of Adam. We're, we're all here. None of us can, can overcome that in our own strength. We're all born that way. We are born sinners. There's nobody here that's born perfect except Jesus. Okay, we're all born sinners. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have needed to come to die for us, right? If we were perfect and can save ourselves, then there was no need for Jesus' death there's no need for his atonement. There's no need for his resurrection. So we're all sinners because of Adam. So this is not a checklist of like, oh, okay, God, I get to heaven. And, oh, I sinned a lot less than this person. So God says, okay, because you only sinned 99 times and not 100 times, you get into heaven. Right? Doesn't matter. We are all sinners regardless of the amount of sins that we may commit. So, so let, me, let me put it in a better perspective here because... What, what God does now for us is he gives us the commandments of God to Mount Moses. Remember Charleston Heston when he went up to, to Mount Sinai and he got the commandments? Remember that? Now, now we're going to get very specific on what sin is. Because now what God does is he gives the Israelites what his expectation of sin is. And he's going to clarify. He's going to make it crystal clear now to us that, that this is against my will. So every person knows. So the commandments are given to us to understand what, what we do against God and what we can do against one another. So when the commandments were given to Moses, God spells out for us what those specific sins would be. So these Ten Commandments were God's moral law on how we are to relate to God and then relate to one another. So you ask, well, what, what was sin before the law was given? Well, man was subject to death because of their sin. And this was a direct result of the inherited sin nature from Adam and Eve. After the law, man is subject to death as a result, not only of Adam and Eve, but also the result of breaking God's law. Because we broke God's law, sin was now credited to us or actually imputed to us. And Paul says this in Romans 5.13 where he says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So now we have the inherited sin from Adam and Eve, we have the Ten Commandments that are given to us. It tells exactly what, what God's will is for us and what we are not to do. Thou shall not, blah, 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 right? But also, there's personal sin. So not only are we all sinners by nature, that we're born with this, because then not only do we know we sin because we break God's law, but there's also this personal sin, which was very interesting if you watched the video there, was these personal sins can range from little so-called white lies to stealing and murder. The bottom line is, man is without excuse. We, the Bible says that we are all guilty of sin. And because we're guilty, because of Adam, we are guilty because we broke God's commands, and we are guilty because we sin, because we sin personally. So the result is not just a physical death, but a spiritual one. The Bible says that we are dead in our transgressions. We are spiritually dead and cannot revive ourselves without a Redeemer, which is Jesus Christ. 
So the whole purpose of Christ's coming was to give his perfect sacrifice and pay the penalty of our sin and for breaking God's law. So the, the, remember I explained this to you. I don't want you to look at the Bible as little bits and pieces. Like, oh, there's the story of Moses and there's Noah and, you know, and there's... And there's Abraham, and, and there's Joseph, and these are all neat little stories, and we can find good character studies in each one of them. I want you to realize the whole Bible is about one story, and that's God's redemptive story on how he was going to reach man through his son, Jesus Christ. Because if we take that out of the story, it's just a bunch of stories, right? They're cool stories, but if we take out God's purpose for why he sent Jesus, even in the Old Testament, then it just becomes a bunch of stories. God's story is his redemptive story all the way from Genesis to Revelation on how God is redeeming us through his son and why he brought his son into the world. Uh, Paul explains this very well in Ephesians 1, 7, where he says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through what? His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses or sins, according to the riches of what? His grace, not my works, not how good Barden is, but we receive this redemption and the forgiveness of our, our sins according to the riches of what God's grace. Now, Martin Luther makes a good quote here. He says, strange, though I'm saved from sin, I'm not saved from sinning. Amen. Good spot for an amen there, right? How many know we, we still are sinners? And, and if we say that we're out sin, the Bible says we call ourselves liars. See, through our faith in Christ, we are set free from the penalty of sin, which is death and eternal damnation. Now, here, here's where I, I want us to realize. That doesn't, that doesn't mean we'll never be tempted. That doesn't mean we'll never make a mistake again. That doesn't mean that... It, what it does mean is this. Is that through Christ, I'm now saved from death and God's wrath that was pointed towards me. Because Jesus took that penalty upon himself and became that sin offering for me. And so because of Christ's death, he took on God's wrath. He took on the penalty that should have been pointed towards you and I. And through my faith in Jesus Christ, now God imputes the righteousness of Christ into my life because of my faith in Jesus Christ. That's the good news. Whew. Amen. So there's hope. There's hope for us sinners. Amen. There's hope for us. So let me give you a little background because I want to get very specific here. And this is because so buckle your seatbelts. Now you're thinking, well, this message isn't that bad. This is pretty good. I can handle this, Pastor. I'm doing good. Okay, just wait. Now we're going to get very specific, okay? Because what Paul does in, dress, in dressing the Corinth church, he gets very specific about what is happening in the church and what they battled with in their former lives and what they should not be battling with in their lives in Christ, that they need to walk away from this old lifestyle. So let me give you a little background here because Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, and this was a very dysfunctional church, which need a lot of correction. This church was immersed... I want to let you know that Corinth was a perverse city beyond all comprehension. And I'm going to keep it as PG as I can here, okay, this morning. But let me just tell you what this city was like. In this city was a temple to Aphrodite, which was dedicated for the simple religious act of lust. They had over a thousand priestesses who were nothing more than prostitutes. This city catered to sailors and traveling businessmen. The word Corinth or Corinthian was synonymous with immorality. 
Corinth had such a bad reputation that whenever a Greek play was done and they had someone who played a Corinthian, they always showed them drunk. Some would say that the saying of Corinth was what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. No, I'm teasing. Okay. It, they, you're like, really? That's where it came from? No, I'm teasing. It, 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 we call Las Vegas Sin City. This made Las Vegas look like a church picnic. Okay, that, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping it. I'm just keeping it PG here, people. Okay. I'm keeping it as PG as I can. Corinth was just a filthy, immoral city. And so Paul was warning them to be careful not to fall back into their former lifestyle. And so Paul gets very specific with the church on what is righteous and what is immoral. And so he's going to define it for us. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 6, because this is where Paul gets very specific. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. Now, when I read the first half of this, you're going to say, what does that have to do with the cost of milk? I'm going to explain it to you. So just read it with me. And, and it would make sense uh, when I explain it to you after we read the passage. So let's see what Paul says here. Paul says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he not dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then on matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But the brothers go to the law against brother. And that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Now, which, watch what Paul says. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Look at the list Paul gives here. Neither the sexual moral, the idolater, the adulterer, the man who practiced homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, the swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed when you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. What is Paul saying here? What is going on here? Paul is concerned. Paul is concerned about brothers not getting along. They were taking their disputes to court and not working it out before the body of Christ. And this was a bad witness in this city. What was happening here in the Corinthian church is that they were acting worldly and immature. They were acting worldly and immature in small matters. 
And Paul is not saying that we should never use the courts. What Paul is saying, work it out as brothers in Christ, not through ungodly, worldly ways. And what is interesting about this passage in chapter 6 is Paul juxtaposes brothers who take each other to court over small matters and not acting mature to the unrighteous, to those who are sexually immoral, adulterers, drunkards, the practice of homosexuality, swindlers. This is really interesting to me. Here is what I want you to see that Paul is driving at. Paul points out their sin in comparison with what the unrighteous do. And in many ways, I have to admit that we as the church have blown it. We point out the sins of the world, but we never look at our own shortcomings. So Paul is pointing this out to the church. And that's why I told you earlier that that we need to look in the mirror before we look out the window, before we start pointing the finger at the world's sin. We need to look at ourselves, which we are all, all of us, are included in Paul's list. That makes you warm and fuzzy, doesn't it? We all are. We're we're all included in Paul's list here. But here's what I want to tackle today for you. There are two issues that are most polarizing in our world today that we have stamped in our world today as, as okay and not immoral. And that's where I want to be careful as we as a church that we understand this correctly. So we need to understand Because in 2014, if I mention the word sexual immorality, you're going to have all different definitions on what that truly means. So what I'm going to do as biblically as I can, I want to explain to you so as parents, you can explain this to your children. So as you as couples or looking to get married or in a relationship right now, you can look at this so you can be as godly as you can and obey the word of the Lord so that you can understand what it means to be obedient to the Lord. So I, I, I want to I be as biblical as I can here and define what, and I'm going to be specific. I'm not going to leave it vague for you because I'm just going to lay out what the Bible says and may the truth set us free this morning. May the truth, it's the truth, and sometimes the truth is going to hurt. We're going to wrestle with it. We're going to have tensions. I'm not saying that it's easy. I'm not saying that we're not going to wrestle with these issues. I'm not saying that for some of you, these are very personal for you. Some of you are wrestling with these issues right now. So I'm not just trying to broad brush this and say, oh, this is easy. Here's the truth. Get over it and move on with your life. No, these are issues that we deal with every day. And I'm not saying that they're easy or that we don't wrestle with them or they're not tensions. They're in our lives. But let's see what the truth of God says. Okay, so let's first look at what is sexual immorality. What is a sexual sin? The scriptures tell us. To keep the marriage bed pure. Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So let me define what this means. As biblically as I can. What the Hebrew writer is saying is this. Any, any sexual activity, and I'm trying to keep this as PG as I can, people, okay? So pray for me, okay? Any sexual activity that is done outside the marriage bed 
is sin. Adultery, pornography, fornication, homosexuality, all falls under that same Greek word of what sexual immorality means. So you might be thinking to yourself right now, Pastor, are you serious? It is 2014. What is the big deal? Here's the big deal. Why, why is it such a big deal for God to keep the marriage bed from defilement or becoming impure? Why is this a big deal to God? Well, let me tell you why. God designed marriage between a man and a woman, and the two, he said, would literally become one or one flesh. This is a spiritual thing, I want you to realize. It's not just a physical thing, it's a spiritual thing. God wanted holy intimacy between a man and a woman. So let's define it, because God defines it for us in Genesis. Genesis 2, 24 and 25. So we have to understand, okay, what, what, okay, we understand that keep the marriage bed pure, but we live in 2014 and we've redefined what marriage is. So let's define biblically what marriage is, because we, we've got to go back to the beginning to define what God says is marriage. Well, here's what Genesis 2, 24 and 25 says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to who? His wife. And they shall become, what? One flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were, what? Unashamed. Why? Because it was pure and honorable before God because God brought it together. Now, I want you to notice the wording here. This is covenantal language. This isn't a, this isn't a contract. I don't know about you, but I've never been at a wedding where two people stood before each other and had a list before them, before they stood before the minister, and they had a contract where they said, okay, I will say I do if you do the laundry. Okay, I can work with that. I will say I do if you fix the car and, and do the oil changes. I could deal with that. And they had this big, long list. How many know that would suck the joy out of that wedding? Right? How many know I'd be like the first person, where is my toaster? I'm taking my gift and I'm out of here. What is this? It's a conscious. This isn't marriage. When you go to a marriage, notice what the language is of the marriage vow. It's, I love you forever. I will never leave you or what? Forsake you. I, I, death do us part. Right? It's, it's not a contract. It's what? It's covenantal language. It's no different from what God... That's why we get that, because it's no different from what God established in Genesis chapter 2. He says, anything that comes between this relationship from man and wife, God is displeased. So notice the word. It's covenantal language. The husband was to hold fast to his wife. It means faithfulness. I will never leave you or forsake you. So God says anything that defiles that relationship, that intimacy between the husband and wife needs to stay between the husband and wife. And God blesses what? The marriage bed, because the marriage bed symbolizes the union of the husband and the wife. And when it's done under the covering of God, God what? Blesses it. He blesses it. Because we're obeying God in his word. And, 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 and I have to admit, many of our issues today as a pastor for 24 years, all boiled down to some type of sexual deviancy or issues. I'm just telling you, it does. There's something wrong. There's something askew. There's something not right. There's some pornography there. There's something there that is eating away at the marriage bed. Capiche? Are you hearing me, people? All right. 
Let me address what's probably the most controversial issue in our, in our day today. And that's the issue of homosexuality. Now let me be as careful as I am here, because I believe in many ways the church has fumbled the ball on this issue. And let me be clear here. Notice that Paul gives, including this issue, is a whole bunch of other ones. And we need to be very careful that we look in the mirror before we start pointing the finger at the world. I know this is a very polarizing issue. And so the question is this. The question is, is this wrong and is it a sin? Because really that's, what, that's what's at the core of the debate today. The core of the debate is, is, is this wrong and is this the sin? Let me first say this. We as a church, we love people. We love people. Anyone that walks through the doors of living word, we love them. And they have a right, like anybody else, to hear the message of Jesus' love and compassion and what he did for them on the cross. Okay, we're all together there. Good. You aren't sleeping on me this morning. You guys are, you guys are with it this morning. Okay. So I know it's a difficult topic. You might be here today and you might be struggling with same-sex attraction. You might have a son or a daughter or a friend that's in this lifestyle. And the problem is this. When we look at Paul's list, we tend to only pull this one out. But I want to remind you again that every single one of us is included in these other lists that are sin, right? So let's look in the mirror. Let's just not pull this one out. But this one is in the list and we need to deal with it. Some of you here, you might have this argument. And, and for order, in order for us to correctly answer this against the arguments in the world concerning this very issue, we need to answer the question, is it wrong? And we have to line up our desire against God's truth. That's the only, it's the only way we're going to have any footing in this, in this dialogue, is we have to line it up against God's truth. We know that Jesus died for sinners, so that's the list. He died for all of us. So someone might have this argument, and they say, well, Pastor, weren't people just born that way, and God made me that way? And my response to them would be this. We are all born with wrong desires. For this reason... We are all born with a sinful nature. So listen, we, we can go round and round and have these circular arguments. Well, if I was born that way, and why wouldn't God, blah, blah, blah. I, 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 this is my argument. It doesn't matter. Because we're all born with sinful desires because every single one of us are sinners. So we have to line it up against the truth of God. So no matter how much we try to make it look good, it's still wrong. Well, we could say... Well, I don't see what's wrong with having a close friend with someone who's the opposite sex, who isn't my wife or husband. No matter how much we try to say this is pure, is it right to have a, a, a very close relationship with someone who's not your wife or husband? We would all say no. That's wrong because as a pastor, I've seen too many people that have bought into this line and gone down a bad road. It's like that song. If loving you was wrong, then I don't want to be right. Right? That's just silly. It's just so... We, we, we follow our wrong desires because we're not lining them up with God's truth. So what's the right way? Listen to me very closely. What is the right way? The right way is this. I take my wrong desires and then I become obedient to Christ. Whatever they are. Does that mean I'll never struggle with temptation or lust? No. 
See, we can make the mistake in thinking that someone with the same sex attraction comes to Christ, they give their life to Christ, and then we, will, we would lie to ourselves if we would say that they would never struggle with that desire again. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Now, how many married men, don't raise your hand, do not raise your hands. I will, slap, I will have Pastor Mike come over and slap you right now if you do it, okay? Listen, how many of you married men have never, ever, ever, ever struggled with lust after they were married? You would, we would all be lying to ourselves if we say we never, right? I should have got a lot of amens out there, but that's okay. You guys are all scared now. You're like, I'm not going to raise my hand. I'm not saying amen. I'm not condemning myself. All right. Listen, listen, we all have regrets. And for most of us, those regrets stem from sexual sins. Let's be honest. That is why God is so clear about sexual morality. That's why he's crystal clear here. So what I have to do is, if I'm going to be obedient to Christ, whatever that desire may be, no matter how much we try to sanctify that desire and, 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 and make it good and make it right, if God says it is a sin and goes against his plan for our lives, then we have to take that desire and we have to line it up with God's plan. Because just because you have a desire... And just because the world may say that desire is okay and we, we bless and sanctify that desire does not mean that desire is holy before God. And that's where we have to come to, people. We have to come to that truth of what does God's word say. Not with, and that, now, does this mean that we're mean to people? No. When I understand God's grace and what he has saved me from, what it does is it causes me to become sympathetic towards the world and love the world with the love that Jesus loves, loved us with. That God demonstrates his love towards us, that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. Do we have a love for the world or not? Are we following the obedience of Jesus Christ by becoming a servant to the world or are we just sitting in the seat of judgment towards the world? That's not our job. Our job is to extend the wonderful message of Jesus Christ. He gave his life and loved sinners. And he gave his life for them. That was God's plan. That Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. And every single one of you are, were lost until you came to know Christ, if you did. And Paul says, here's the list. And some of you were this. So here's our hope. Our hope can be found in nowhere else but Jesus Christ. Because this is where we find the freedom and, and forgiveness. And that's what I love about what the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, when he says, For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who was unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We have a sympathetic Savior 
who says, I know what you did. I know your past. But if you come to me, you will find forgiveness. When you come to me, you're going to find healing for your sins. When you, when you come to me and you confess those things. See, see if, if we do not confess that we are sinners, that we've fallen short of God's perfection and God's glory, you cannot receive God's salvation. Are you hearing me? We can't receive it because then Jesus' death was mute. It was benign. It, it was no good. If I don't realize that I was a sinner that needed to be saved by God's grace. doesn't matter what sin it is. God's grace is deeper. God's grace is greater. And so I have to come to that realization. I love this quote by Susanna Wesley. She was the mother of John and Charles Wesley, founders of the Methodist movement. She was the 25th child of 25 children. They were the Duggars of the 1700s, right? My daughter Lily loves that show, the Duggars. 19 and counting. If you ever catch it, it's really, really good. Great, wonderful family. Well, she didn't stop there. 25 of her own, or 24 of her own siblings and brothers. She had 19 children of her own. You go, Susanna, right? She raised some incredible kids. And this is her definition to her children of what sin is. If anything weakens your reasoning, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes away your relish for spiritual things. In short, if anything increases the authority of the power of the flesh over the spirit, that to you becomes sin. However good it is in itself. I think that's a pretty good definition. My question to you here this morning is before we take communion, as Paul says this, he says in 1 Corinthians, again, correcting the Corinthians in chapter 11, he says, when we take communion, we come before the Lord's table. This is not a slight thing. This isn't something we just do religiously here at Living Word. This is something when we come together, Paul says, we ought to examine our hearts. And I would say to you this morning, is there something that you've been rationalizing in your heart? Is there something that you've been justifying in your heart that you know that God is not pleased with and it's not lining up to His truth? God says to you this morning, Jesus says, come to me. Before you take communion this morning, come to me. Because if we make our requests known to Jesus, to God, the Bible says He is faithful and just to forgive us. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we confess those things to Him. I tell you all the time, we are just a dysfunctional, messed up church. We all are. We all made mistakes this week. We said things we shouldn't have said. We lost our temper. Blah, blah, blah. Listen, we're all in the same boat. We need Jesus. We need His grace every single day. We need, if, if we are not sensitive to the Holy Spirit every single day, how do you know it's easy to go off track? It just is. And I want the heart of God to so grip my heart 
that my love for people increase every single day, more and more and more. I was taking my son Wes to a baseball game, and it was in the city. And I said, Wes, did you want a, a Gatorade or whatever? He goes, yeah, 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 that's fine. So I stopped, and I stopped at one of these little teeny convenience stores. And uh, basically, the convenience store is basically booze and lotto tickets. That's all it was. And everybody's lined up there buying all their alcohol and getting tons of lotto tickets. And my first thought was like, wow, isn't that sad? People just, they're going to go home and they're going to get bombed and they're going to waste their money on lotto tickets. Or what, I don't even know what they're called, whatever they are. Whatever the tickets are. You know, what I only bought five of them. but that, No, I'm just teasing. I'm teasing. I, I, I was like, what are these things? Um, tell me about them. And, um, and I have to admit, the first thought in my heart was judgmental. And I got in the car. And God just spoke to my heart so clearly. He said, Barton, these are the very people I came to save too. You are no better. You're no better. You're no better. May God change our heart for people. I don't care if there's somebody that's struggling with homosexuality or whatever sin it may be. That my heart for people will deepen with the love of God. May people's perception of the church change because of the way we treat people. You see, when you really get down to it, people really don't have a lot of issues with Jesus. They have a lot of issues with Christians. So may God change our heart. Let's start now as we take communion and whatever issue you're dealing with today. May God's love and His grace overwhelm you today and that you take your desire and line it up in obedience to God's will. So Lord, we bow our hearts before you today. And that's our prayer. That whatever wrong desire we have, we would line it up in obedience to you, Jesus, because you care for us and you love us. We thank you for what communion means. That Jesus, this bread symbolizes your body that was given for us. The cup symbolizes your blood that was shed for us. And that without your death, we could not find healing and forgiveness because you took on our penalty. So as we take this as a family, may we recognize the great lengths, Jesus, that you went to to save us. You gave your very life for our sins. And for that, we're grateful. So, Lord, I pray that you would just inspect our hearts. We give you permission to inspect our hearts today. And we confess anything that's wayward to you. And we thank you that there's forgiveness and that through our confession, we can find your grace and your forgiveness in Jesus' name. We give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, communion is open to anyone. You don't have to be a member of Living Word, but if you're a member of God's family, you're a follower of Jesus, and I'm going to tell you to take communion. If you don't take communion, that's fine. But uh, you're all welcome to take it if you're a follower of Christ and have prayed that prayer and, and are obedient to Him. You take it and let God bless you today. We'll take communion together. 
after everyone serves, so please wait to the end. And uh, just may God bless you as you worship and uh, as you receive communion this morning. God bless you.